You know, you don't have to do this. We've been through 22 missions together, sir, and, well, hell, I'm your lucky charm. You wouldn't go and fly without insurance now, would you? <laughs> Must be a replacement. Well, sir, what we have before us is a real dilemma. You gonna fly your last mission with a green gunner or the jinxed one? You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. Hey guys, it's Terry here. And uh, you know he he's working the 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 front gun. I'm working the rear gun, and we're just going to fly this thing in all the way to the end. That's going to be the the first of probably some terrible flying jokes and puns and or other stuff I'll come up with here. I hope you guys enjoyed enjoyed our discussion about Campfire Tales. Um, you know, as we, we were thinking of it as more as, um, are you afraid of the dark, but with swears and boobs, um, but we're moving on to something else a little different. Um, this is amazing stories season one, episode five of the mission. Uh, this is the first season is available at NBC.com. If you go there, the first, um, season's available. There are some ads, which that, that was annoying, but it's free. So I can't complain that the content's available. Um, We'll talk more about like the day and date and what was going around that time. So, Terry, what what did what did you know about Amazing Stories before we got into this episode? Uh, to be quite honest, absolutely nothing. Like I, I okay, I elaborate. No, so like, <laughs> expand <laughs> on that. Expand on nothing, please. Well, it, it just—I don't know if it was something that my family just wasn't interested in when I was younger or what if the content wasn't horror enough, because it just seemed like the things that we were more interested in watching at my house were, uh, things that were gruesome horror, horror films and slashers and thrillers and stuff like that. For some reason, this just never came on the TV. So I don't, I've never heard of it, uh, until, um, you guys had talked about it prior and I thought it was interesting enough. And especially this episode, you had mentioned it in, in the past and I was like, if I'm going to get an introduction to it, it might as well be the one that sounds the most interesting to me with, you know, two amazing uh, actors in it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and this might also been like a little before your time, which I know is kind of funny considering that, that our show is mainly based in the twilight zone, in the sixties that implies that like, you know, I've been around forever, but just a little bit, a little South of forever. But, uh, this was, this originally, uh, like this episode aired in 85, right? So, uh, air date, November 3rd, 85, I was born in 78. So I was, I was just old enough to start remembering like things I saw on TV, which will, that's going to tease what we're going to cover next week. 
Um, so I could see how maybe since this only lasted two seasons on NBC and then kind of it's, it's, it's not that it got forgotten, but I don't really ever remember this thing in syndication. Uh, it just kind of just sat there and it's one of those, like one of those, um, interesting experiments because it was produced by Steven Spielberg. This was at, I'm not saying at the height of Spielberg because clearly he's still at the top of everything, but this was him rocketing upward. Right. So like, um, you know, this is right after ET. So he was starting to do this thing that Steven Spielberg does best where he, you know, like he obviously directed this episode and directed the pilot, which was called ghost train, which we did cover a while ago here on the show. Um, and this is before, you know, he got into like the Oscar territory of like best picture stuff. But this was like prime, like, like awe and wonder, like twinkly noises, Steven Spielberg. And you would think that that would have gotten like gotten the shoe over the finish line. It, it did have a two season like guaranteed run. Um, but in terms of like how much it cost to make versus the ratings, which it it didn't do well here per the Wikipedia page. It says amazing stories was the anthology television series. You know, we know that um, it, uh, it ran from September 85 to April um, 87. It was nominated for 12 Emmy awards and actually won five. Um, so it, it, it's not like the critics weren't paying attention to it. Uh, the, the first season episode, the amazing Fallsworth, which I think is the one before this or around it, uh, that's what earned Mick Garrison Edgar Award for best episode in the TV series. So that landed him on the map. Uh, it it was 35th uh, in its first season ranking wise and 52nd in season two. So it never really it never really did gangbusters. So it's just one of those things that like critics liked it. I'm sure the studio or the network liked it. It's just that it just never brought people. And I know one of the big knocks against anthologies is that you don't have consistent characters. So why would people tune in each week? Which is surprising to me though, because we've had plenty of other um, series that are anthology based and they did really well, like tales from the crypt. That's fair. Um, that, but I think that might, that might be a little different because uh, you know, it was premium cable and they were able to lean more into like, you know, the pulp not pulp's not the right word, but like, you know, the swear words and the boobs, just like the last movie we watched. And I don't know, maybe there's a little more taboo attached to it, but uh, I feel like something that's anthology now would be more successful on a streaming service because people can binge or pick and choose. Um, but like as anthologies, as a <clears throat> primetime series, I can't think of one in my time while growing up that really stands out. That was actually like on like primetime, like of the big three or four, if you include Fox later. I can't think of it. Yeah, it. I I guess I guess not. I get now that you say it. I mean, there isn't really one that sticks out uh, to me as well. I mean, there's. Uh, there's uh, there, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. There's shows that have elements. Uh, what was, uh, believe it or not, that wasn't that one show that had like multiple stories, and you had to pick out which one um, might have actually been true or not. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that, you're right. That's Fact, that, that's uh, you're right. The, the Ripley's Believe It or Not was a little different. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, the, what I was also thinking of too used to talk about elements like a show like Highway to Heaven or like Quantum Leap, where the main characters are the same, but the situations and people that they encounter each week is different, especially quantum leap. You want to talk about a show that's like tangentially anthology kind, you know, kind of, it would be it. But in terms of like just a straight up anthology series, 
Um, I can't think of one that successfully ran in primetime, um, which is also part of the reason why I think that CBS was hesitant to bring the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone into the, like the actual broadcast. I guess that's fair, uh, considering uh, there isn't really that great of a track record. Uh, I guess I'm I'm jaded in the fact that everything seems to all be um, important to me, <laughs> and it probably. It should have been important to somebody else, but maybe not. <laughs> and I'll, I guess I'll, I'll take a step back to There was the 85, 86 Twilight Zone that came after Amazing Stories that ran for a few seasons. So I guess I should, you know, I guess I could lie and say I'm aware of that, but that's also the Twilight Zone. And then there's the CW or WB or UPN or whatever, that one season, the Twilight Zone that was also, but that, you know, that wasn't a major cable out, you know, provider, but there was the 80s Twilight Zone. But I can't think of anything else other than that. And I'm sure somebody will like tell me I'm wrong and I'll be like, you're probably correct about that. But so the long and the short of it is, is that um, this was a series that lasted two seasons, had a decent budget, had some really good creative behind it, and it just didn't stick around. There is currently on Apple TV, there is a, a um, revival of the series. I don't have Apple TV, so I've not seen it. I have not heard the best about it. But again, I don't know who's reviewing it or what their expectations are of it. Yeah, I don't know either, man. I until uh, we did the research for this episode, I didn't even know that it had come back. So the advertising of isn't isn't really there either. So I mean, if there's a streaming service that not too many people know about, and you're trying to get people on board, you would think that they would just I don't know flood the internet or flood uh, the <laughs> airwaves to try to figure out. Yeah, I would I would yeah. agree with that. If you have a thing, let people know about it. Uh, one other bit of trivia for the series I'm going to toss out here in this, uh, it's not the first time we've run into a, a similar thing. Um, the, the 87 film batteries not included was originally to be a story for like amazing stories. Uh, Spielberg liked the idea so much that he actually uh, produced it into a theatrical release. So I don't know if you've seen batteries not included. It definitely fits in the wheelhouse of the series. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a real fun movie. Um, definitely one of those movies that I think, could only exist at the period of time that it did, because I don't know if this would be a very popular film now if it was released. That's fair. Also, what other a bit of trivia I lied? I have a second one. Um, they uh, petitioned Stephen King to write a, like a story for the series, so he wrote a, a teleplay, and they they um, they said it wasn't amazing enough, <laughs> and so it became an episode of Tales from the Dark Side, and it's called Sorry um, Sorry Right Number, I believe is the name of the story. Um, we should visit that at some point because to find out. A, a teleplay wasn't good enough for amazing stories, but it was good enough for tales from the dark side. How could you, could you imagine being Steven Spielberg and hearing it's not amazing enough? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, Him telling yeah. Stephen King, I'm sorry, this isn't amazing enough. I'm top Stephen right now. Go pound salt. You know, like <laughs> I'm V N go away. P H E N, you know, whatever. Um, so it would just be like a, was it the Jay and Silent Bob uh, joke where he had the Oscars? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just so I yeah I, I just think it's weird that uh, King wrote this thing and it's actually it's a really creepy little tale and it's like I guess it just wasn't like fantastic enough. Which uh, again, this is your first time coming to the series, and so uh, this is also this episode's an outlier um, that it's the only one of the of both seasons that's actually an hour long, and I mean by hour long it was like forty minutes for us, but. Uh, I mean, I guess according to NBC.com, it was an hour and a half with all the commercials, but this was the only one that was a longer form of all of them. 
Um, but I think I think you get the notion of where the amazing comes in for the amazing stories as we talk about this. Yeah, it was it was uh, interesting note that I, I I saw that it was that uh, like a longer episode compared to everything else. So they must have had so much put into the budget that they're like, well, dude, we we spent all this money on it, so we got to show it off. Yeah, and but there's some there's some things that happen here too, and we'll talk about it more in a second. Where um, there was some smart some smart moves to hide some of the money or hide the lack of money. And I want to talk about that too more when we get there. So let's get to let's get to cast and crew here. Story by Steven Spielberg, directed by Steven Spielberg. Never heard of him. Um, what's your, what's your favorite Spielberg movie? Movies like just give me. A, he's made a million, and there's a lot that we can love. Well, yeah, I, I think uh, I'd have to instantly go to Jurassic Park and the Indiana Jones uh, series, the first three. Um, and Jaws. I mean, those are those are incredible films. And you can see that he like, especially with Jaws, that the dude was ready for everything. Like he was ready for the big budget. He was ready to for the shoestring budget. And he was ready to give everybody an amazing story, pun intended, I guess, um, no matter what the budget was. He's just an incredible filmmaker. And he is able to dig deep into a story and give everybody like possible picture it's too like i love gremlins yeah no it, yeah and like um that yeah that one and i know he was producer on like uh, poltergeist like he also has an eye for i may not be the person to do this but this would be really cool if we did it this way like type of stuff and uh and then even like his more dramatic things like uh, obviously schindler's list is just a sledgehammer saving private ryan i outside of the movie up I've never been in tears in the first 10, 10 minutes in a movie and like, like watching it like straight up, like, like up just gutted me and like, and saving private Ryan, that first D day assault, why well, saw it in the theater. I was just in tears at like how brutal it was, you know? And like the guy can tell a story and he can, um, he can change gears, uh, from like fantastic sci-fi to like, the, you know, this is reality. You have to stare at it like a film like Munich, which is just also another humdinger of a film. Like he's, he's one of those guys that has shaped how we understand film, how we understand storytelling. And that the, the day he hangs it up and leaves this world um, in terms of storytelling and movies will be worse off. I, that, that's a, I mean, that's well put because he, he is an incredible talent. Um, he's obviously like made uh, such a name for himself that if he never did anything else, he wouldn't have to prove himself anymore. Like he's he is awesome at every facet of moving, uh, producing a movie, like giving a product, like whatever you want to call it, because he can direct, he can write, he can produce like the guy is just phenomenal at what, what he does. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, you know, obviously we could discuss about Steven Spielberg, but, uh, and then also people, if you guys want to go see some of his other TV work, go check out the first episode of the season called ghost train. It's really good. Um, you know, and also go and watch duel for God's sake. Maybe we'll cover that on the show at some point. I think that'd be a fun, a fun talk to cover duel because it's some Matheson and some Spielberg. I think that'd be a good, a good discussion. Uh, so the teleplay is by, um, uh, Spielberg and, um, this guy, uh, Menno Mayas, um, it looks like the, he worked a lot with Spielberg early on and was kind of like he was able to kind of 
not I don't want to discredit this guy because clearly he worked on this. He worked on like Indiana Jones. He did a lot of earlier work with Spielberg. If you know, there's there's creative people that like Spielberg would be the first person to tell you he can't draw a storyboard. Like if he he says it's a mess, like he just draws stick figures. So he'll try to explain to somebody what he means. I think this this gentleman was that guy that could understand what Spielberg was getting to and was able to articulate it enough better into a teleplay than Spielberg was capable of writing himself. Yeah, possibly. I, I've never, and I, I feel sorry for saying this, but I, I've never heard of the gentleman. Uh, but, you know, he's got some credits under his belt that are actually pretty sweet, too. I mean, he uh, wrote the color purple. Well, uh, wrote the screenplay, I should say. Uh, and uh, uh, wrote Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So, I mean, he's definitely ingratiated himself into uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, little team. Yeah. So. So, all right. Um, I'll let you take the lead here on cast because uh, there's a there's a number of people here, but there's a certain point where like there's a there's a, a sheer cliff drop off of people in this. So I'll follow your lead. So who do we have? Okay, so I'll, I'll I'll try to make them as brief as possible. So Kevin Costner is our lead here. He plays the captain. Uh, people may know him from The Untouchables, Field of Dreams, The Bodyguard. And one of my favorite roles of his is uh, Mr. Brooks, where he plays a serial killer. And it is, I think, an amazing film. I I have not seen it. That's the one with uh, Dan Cook in it as well. How does Dan Cook hold himself up in that film? He dies really well in it. It's awesome. Is this your so. Meg Ryan <laughs> moment like we had, like I had last week? Is that it? You're like, oh, this is my favorite Dan Cook death. You should definitely check this out. Like what? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like when uh, when I talk about Jack Black, one of my favorite roles is in when he's in the Jackal. He dies so amazingly; it's awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, it's Kevin Costner. Like, what's to say about him? Like, one of those guys that you know he's done some amazing things. He's been in, he's been in some shit movies, but I always like Kevin Costner. Uh, he was in a Clint Eastwood directed film called A Perfect World. Uh, you know, this was, you know, 20 years ago. He's really good in that, uh, 3000 miles to Graceland's not a good movie at all, but he plays a good bad guy. Elvis, if that makes sense, against Kurt Russell, like they're, they're battling Elvi. Um, it's, it's a stupid movie, but it's great seeing them both like the big, like mutton chops and him being like the, the dark suited asshole Elvis impersonator. Um, Waterworld's a fun movie, uh, as much as he was a diva on that, in that movie, I, I like Kevin Costner um, and he's still working. There's a not, I mean, not only is he doing movies, it isn't like he's retired. He has that uh, show on the Paramount network called Yellowstone. That looks kind of interesting. It's just, it looks like kind of like a more of a modern day Western. I'm sure that does well with like the Dr. Quinn medicine woman crowd, but um, <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, you know, I, I love Kevin Costner and he's and he just, you know, and also like pick a baseball movie, you know, like field of dreams amazing right so yeah he uh, he's incredible um yeah like you said he's had some shit films but i like him as an actor and he's attached to a lot of different projects so check him out if you don't know who kevin costner is check out some of his roles uh you'll be floored by some of them so <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah like, who kevin kevin costner like i don't i don't know who this guy is yeah so uh next we have now this this name is wacky so i'm sorry if i mispronounce this which i'm going to anyways um Casey... oh sorry go ahead 
Oh no! I tried it. <laughs> no, I said Kiefer Sutherland. That's what. I, <laughs> that's a hard one to say. I was joking. Please go ahead. Uh, Casey Sizemesco. Sizemesco. Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, Sizemesco. I think that's. I think that's right. Um, but yeah, it's a weird name. I mean, as in to pronounce. That's that's what I'll say about that. Yeah. So uh, he plays Jonathan. Um, not a lot of big roles, but he plays in uh, Back to the Future as one of the the goons. Um, uh, Stand by Me, Young Guns, and The Phantom. Because I had to put that on there because Billy Zane's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> have we ever have we ever talked about Billy Zane? I know we're I know we're good friends and. You know, we, we, you know, we've hugged over many of things. Have we ever talked about our love of Billy Zane? This is not this episode, but I love Billy Zane. I love Billy Zane as well. Um, I think that it's just one of those uh, things that is known. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just people should know that they should love B- Billy Zane. And I wish he was friend of show Billy Zane so we could just put that out there. But apparently he he doesn't he's too important for us he's billy zane you know <laughs> I, I just there was just a running joke i had with a buddy of mine years ago where i was like you know you know i mean like i'm not saying that like you know like i i, I you know i'm married to my wife i love her but it's like if billy zane asked me out i'd say yes because he's a handsome man and he's well positioned in hollywood like he's not the most famous so he you can't he can't pull an ego trip but he knows people so you would have fun at parties so yes i would go out with billy, billy zane I, d- I don't think he's a bad actor. I just think that he hasn't found the role that really shot him into stardom. And I'm, oh. I'm thinking a lot of people thought it was going to be the Phantom, but it wasn't because no, it I, wasn't a great film. Yeah, I'm not saying he's a bad actor. I'm just saying like he's not like like the biggest like star in Hollywood now, right? Other than being friend of uh, Ben Stiller, sorry, Derek Zoolander. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's like the guy was in Titanic. So he's one of the most successful films of all time. He was in Demon Knight. You know, if Billy Zane asked me out, I'd say yes. That's what I'm, he's not in this at all, but I would, you know, he was also in Back to the Future, so there's a tie-in uh, for for Casey here. But yes, um, got, you, anyway, I'm, I'm fighting over Billy Zane. That's not, he's not here. Yeah, so yeah, shout out Billy Zane. Uh, listen to our podcast. Give me a call um, sometime, so, Billy Zane. Yeah. Uh, next we have uh, Kiefer Sullivan. Um, people may know him. Uh, he plays Static in this episode. But he was also in Stand By Me. So we had a good connection there to Casey. Um, he was also in The Lost Boys, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And he was in Young Guns as well with Casey. But the uh, two other p- films that I want to note, um, if people have not seen him, and he's amazing in both of them, is a movie called Freeway, which is kind of a retelling of a, um, a Little Red Riding Hood, okay. but really serious. Uh, it's an incredible film. Um, and dark city. Have you ever seen dark city? I have. It's been forever. And I can't remember if I saw, um, th- there's two cuts of that film. I know it's Alex Poria's. It's a second. It's the movie he made after the crow. Uh, and I know that there was a theatrical cut that has, uh, Keith Sutherland's, um, narration at the beginning that kind of gives away the whole game. And I know there's a director's cut where that's stripped out. I can't remember which one I've seen. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, you know, it's been a minute since I've seen it, but the visuals in that film are amazing. And there's just, yeah. it's, it's so wacky and it was inception before inception. So if anybody wants to check out a visually stunning film, um, from like 95 or something like that, it check out dark city. It's really good. 
Yeah, and, it, and it's good that you mentioned the Lost Boys because, of course, why wouldn't you, right? Uh, let, let's just point out. So both uh, Keith Sutherland, obviously, he you know comes from like you know a lineage with Don Sutherland being like you know important and awesome as well. But he Kiefer as an actor, I uh, didn't get like his big big break and and like the big the big coming out party for him was the Lost Boys, which would be like a year or two after this. And also the same thing with Kevin Costner, like he would be in the Untouchables uh, just shortly after this. So these guys were like, like had this had this shot a year later, they would not be in this. Let's just you know, like they're they were on like talk about Spielberg on the like the express elevator. These guys are about to step on that too. Yeah, yeah. To give timeline, so this episode came out in '86. Stand by Me came out the same year, and he plays Ace Annette, which he is a douchebag, oh, and yeah. he's really good at being the douchebag. And then the next year, he plays David in The Lost Boys. I mean, the dude is phenomenal, and I think he plays every role so well. I mean, just in case anybody forgot, he was also in that show. Um, was it the the forty uh, forty eight? Uh, twenty four or twenty four? Twenty four. Yeah. <laughs> so like, and that ran for as long as like I don't, can't even remember how that show was. For, like everybody was talking about that show. It was ridiculous. So I mean, he's. He's getting better with age too, I think. So and can't wait to see more of his material. Also, if you guys want to go uh, many years ago, he was drunk and someone got a camera video of him tackling a uh, pine tree. So just check that out too. Cool. He was like in a yeah. hotel lobby. Yeah. He okay. just launches himself at a, at a Christmas tree. It's amazing. So he does his own stunts too. He does his own stunts. Yes. That's yeah. That's what we take from this. Yes. And then also, I mean, we can't forget like flatliners. Like we, we love, we love Keith Sutherland. So yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, was, I didn't have much notes for him because it's like, again, like Kevin Costner and Steven Spielberg. If you if you don't know who they are, I don't I don't know if this is the like, I don't know what to say. That would be like um, if you if you're waking up, if you've been stuck in um, like a, a refrigerator for like 50 years and this is the very first thing it's handed to you as a podcast. And you're listening to us talk about this. Um, well, welcome. Um maybe stay back in there for another few years and, and see what happens next. And also these guys are big now. So welcome. Yeah. Welcome to 2020. So, and so I think this is kind of, kind of the drop off that you were talking about because uh, a lot of these actors are like C or D uh, raid. So like, so stick with us guys. Uh, we're going to, we're going to make some fun connections either way. So uh, JJ Cohen is our next actor here. Uh, he plays Jake. He was also in Back to the Future, and he was um, in the movie The Principal, which is a lot of fun, um, and then 976 Evil, which is a terrible horror film that was directed by um, uh, Robert Englund. I didn't know he directed that. Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. I'm sure I've seen that. I don't remember anything about it, though. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. But anyways... (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, I um, yeah, all I got for him was Back to the Future two and three, which I mean because of the Zemeckis Spielberg connections and also because of the cast connections. Yeah, he plays one of the goons as well. I think yeah. I think he's called like Skinhead or something like that. But either way, um, next we have uh, John Philpin, Philbin, Philbin. Uh, he plays Bullseye. Um, he he was in Children of the Corn. He was Chuck in Return of the Living Dead. And one of the most incredible films made ever, Tombstone. He is in Tombstone as well. So check out Tombstone if you've never had a chance. Uh, it's an amazing Western. 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I bought the Blu-ray recently because there's a sale and I've not, I don't not revisit that film in like forever. So I've been, I need to be in the right mind for a Western and tombstones. One of those ones. It's awesome. And yeah, cool. That's all I got for him too. I didn't have tombstone, but I had, I knew you were going to pick up on the return of the uh, living dead and children of the corn. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm a horror film for, for reek. So most of my connections that I'm listing off here are going to be horror film related. I'm sorry. That's usually what I know anyway. So, but no, next um, party fell yeah. on me for not picking up uh, the Western connection. That's on me. So, yeah, oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll forgive you this time because I there's so many things I don't know about cast members. Otherwise, I'll, I'll so. stand. I'll stand in the corner of the shame for the next five minutes while you talk about the rest of the cast. Yeah, I stacked the deck for myself on this episode. That's why I knew all these different actors. <laughs> Um, so next we have a twin duel in this. Um, so we have Gary and Glenn Morrow. Morrow. Um, they play Sam and Dave respectively. Um, the only thing that I knew them from was the Jim Carrey uh, vampire film Once Bitten. Yeah, there's a number of Once Bitten connections through this. I I didn't write them down because I I've never seen the film. But it was funny because I it, for whatever reason I did the, I did my notes in reverse order. So when I was looking up uh. Glenn Morrow, I was like, oh, brother of Gary. And I was like, okay. And then I looked up, I was like, Gary Morrow. Oh, oh, brother of Glenn. I'm like, oh, shit. Because when I watched the episode, I was like, I was like, these guys, like, it's hard to tell them apart. And then I realized, like, when I'm looking at, when I did my notes, I'm like, oh, it's because they're identical twins. That's why. Like, and it turned out they're, like, both left and right gunner. Like, that's funny. Like, and it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, it, it's, it's not a payoff, but it's just kind of one of those funny bits of, like, of course, identical twins are going to be uh, twin gunners. Yeah, it was kind of fun in the in the episode too. There's a, a little joke um, about one of the drawings, so we'll get to that. But yeah. uh, next we have. Well, I just want Terry to put out Beaver. the yeah. They're called Sam and Dave. I don't know if you're familiar <clears throat> with uh, the duo Sam and Dave. There was a like um, I don't know if it was around. I think it was like 50s to 60s. There was uh, a, like a like a not rock, but like a pop duo called Sam and Dave. So I'm sure that was like done on purpose. I was wondering if there was some kind of weird connection between, you know, like the names, because usually with twins, there's the rhyme. I mean, even my wife is an identical twin and her her sister's name is very close to her. So it makes sense. But I didn't understand the Sam and Dave connection. Sam and Dave did the original Soul Man. I just looked this up. So that's yeah, that's probably that would make sense. All right. Well, cool. I'm glad that you found that information. So. Nice. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, before I stepped all over your toes there, um, uh, <laughs> Terry, Terry Beaver is our next, uh, actor. Unfortunately, I did not know anything that he was in, but he plays the officer, one of the officers in this episode. So next, um, unless you had an idea, it's nope. on Terry. <laughs> I did not kind of drops off really fast after this, but yeah, go ahead, please. Okay. So, all right. This is our most accomplished actor for how many credits he has. So Peter Jason, I think everybody has seen this dude in something. He plays the commander in this episode for a blip, but he has 263 credits. And the ones that I knew him from were Prince of Darkness, They Live, Body Bags, In the Mouth of Madness, and Village of the Damned. Now, all of those are also John Carpenter connections too. So yeah, there you're welcome. Hmm, nice. <laughs> Yeah, I, did, um, I, I so didn't. After, I didn't. 
Sorry, I did not uh, find any, but you're right. There's a lot of good Carpenter connections. That 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 Carpenter connections TM. There you go, trademarked. There you go. Um, so next, uh, Terry, uh, uh, Karen, Cop, Coplin, Cop, Coppins, Coppins. Yeah, sorry. Um, she plays Liz uh, again. She's in here for a warm cup of coffee. Uh, she plays uh, the the wife of Jonathan. Uh, and she is the only credits I've saw of hers that I recognize that she was in once bitten as well. And then she did like uh, a little stint on Dallas. So. Okay. And then uh, next uh, we have Anthony LaPeg. LaPaglia. I think that's how you say his name. Yeah. So he, some people may know him um, from other roles, but he plays mechanic two. I glazed over mechanic one because I didn't know anything he had done. Um, he did one episode of the twilight zone in 86. Um, so there's a little connection there to the podcast. Uh, he was in a really cool vampire flick called innocent blood. Um, oh, is that the one about the so, vampire going around killing all the mobsters? Is that, I've not seen it, but is that what it is? Yep. That, that that's it. Yeah. It's, I have it if you want to borrow it. So yeah, that, it's, it's that, a pretty, it, it's a pretty cool flick. Is that John? It's not John kind Landis. Of, is it that directed that? Uh, I think it that. is Landis. Okay. Um, but ahead. yeah, it's 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 an interesting film. I wouldn't say it's great, but it's kind of it's like kind of a dark uh, dark comedy. So um, next we he was in uh, So I Married an Axe Murderer. There you go. That's and, what I have. I, 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 you've seen So I Married an Axe Murderer, right? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, he plays he plays like the cop friend of Mike Myers' character, and he. His like and he wants to be uh he plays Tony uh, uh was it Giordano or Giardino and he always wants to have like these interactions with his uh his chief which was being played oh I forget the it's a very famous actor and the chief is super nice and but he needs the chief to be like that 70s 80s like yo get in here I need your gun and badge and he won't give it to uh Anthony Paglia's character so they, they have this guy goes back and forth where he's like can you just yell at me a little bit he's like you didn't do anything wrong and it's it's a small bit but it makes me laugh and then there's the bit whenever uh LaPaglia tries to commandeer a vehicle and it's like Charles Grodin in the car and he's like I need to commandeer he's like no that's not going to happen he's like well can you give me a ride <laughs> like I I adore so I married an axe murder so when I saw that credit I, I wanted to make sure I talked about it yeah, it's it's a fun film. Uh, it's before Mike Myers was just doing animated uh, films and films that have lots of sequels. So this was this was really fun, Mike Myers back in the day. And there's a brief uh, bit with him, uh, Lapaglia, and a was a seaplane like a with um with Stephen Wright being a, uh, a ca- like a pilot, and Stephen Wright just deadpanning it and just doing Stephen Wright shit. It's it's a funny moment. Nice. Um, the, the last credit I will name off for him and the one that I knew him very well from, uh, empire records. He plays Joe, the manager of the record shop in a mission. I've never seen empire records. Oh man, dude, you're really killing me today. Yeah. <laughs> There's I'll, a few of these things that I listed <laughs> off. You haven't seen them here. Okay. Throw one of these out here. Oh, shut up, Paul. There you go. I'm going to throw one of those out there. I've never seen Empire <laughs> Records. I don't know what it like that. That seems like prime wheelhouse for me when it came out, because I think it came out when I was in college. I remember the soundtrack. I just have never seen it. I, I that's your homework, dude. You need to watch this movie. <laughs> <I'm> not, 
I'm not going to put it on a pedestal saying it's an amazing film, but it's one of those films from the 90s that works for being in the 90s. Like it's like The Craft or it's like The Crow. Maybe none of these movies were award winning films, but in the 90s, they were like the quintessential 90s films that you were supposed to see. I've what I don't I've not seen those other films either. What are those? Shush. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I've seen, I've seen those other two. I just wanted I wanted you to just like you know hang up and be like we're done now, and then like that'd be it for the episode. I guess we're done with the show now. But uh, yeah, I just I've never seen uh, Empire Records. But yeah, that's that's all I got. I know the, the, his other big thing too is also he did 160 episodes of Without a Trace. That's one of those also CBS uh, procedurals that you know you could turn on in the background and not pay attention to. So he's still working. It's just, you know, it's just funny that like everybody has to start somewhere and he was uh mechanic number two. So that's all I had for my notes. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll glaze through the rest real quick. Um, uh, so Nelson wedge, Welch, uh, he plays father McKay. He was in one episode of the twilight zone in 85 and he worked on playhouse 90. Nice. Oh, there we go. That's uh, that's all I'll give you guys because I feel like we've been a little long winded in this one. But yeah, that's the notes for the cast I have. Perfect. All right. So we don't really have uh, anybody to tell us what this is all about. Like we don't have uh, we don't have a Spielberg coming on screen and, and setting the stage. So um, like, again, this is an hour long episode, but I feel like this is more character beats than it is plot. If that makes sense, um, like because it's a very straightforward plot. Uh, it is um, like I, it's not. It may not be the last days of World War II, but it's like it feels like it's getting closer to. And you have these guys that have uh, flown together for multiple missions on this this bomber. Uh, I didn't catch the type of plane that I. Um, I feel like with this being so steeped in World War II, we we uh, we fell on our keys and didn't bring on our resident historian uh, Trevor to come on with us, and that's on me uh, to talk about this. But it's a it's a bomber plane. They've run. 20 plus bomber runs. Uh, we find out that, uh, Jonathan, uh, he's about to, um, cycle out and go back home and finish his tour. But, um, uh, by the way, did you notice like they kept saying 24 missions, but then they said 22 and then 23. Like, do you think that's a script error where they couldn't decide if this was the 23rd or 24th mission for them to fly? Yeah, I, I, I did notice that. And I was going to put it in my notes, but I'm like, whatever it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, matter but... yeah it was a little confusing though either the long and the short of it is, is that jonathan and their crew have been together for 20 plus missions without any hiccups whatsoever there's a superstition that if someone flies 24 missions it's unlucky so the captain which that's his, just his name he doesn't actually go to name which is uh, kevin costner's character he doesn't want jonathan to come who he's a belly gunner so he uh, i mean you want to talk about like a, a, a high risk position that has to be one of them right um, so he doesn't want Jonathan to come. The rest of the crew is like, but he needs to, we need to get, they said, uh, we need our lucky rub. And I'm like, I don't think I'd say that now, but whatever. Uh, they rub his head for luck. Uh, he, uh, captain is hesitant to bring him. Jonathan's all about coming. And then, you know, so that's why I play at the beginning that he's like, what would you rather have the jinxed, uh, sorry, the, the green gunner or the jinxed one. And so they decide that they're going to do it, that they're going to fly this mission and they're going to get everybody home. And they all rub his head and that's how we start off. And I will say that the, the rubbing of his head feels very Spielbergian because it's like, 
you already have that emotional like touch point going forward that doesn't just pay off. It starts just like hitting you in the heart as you go along. Yeah. And you can tell that there's a lot of camaraderie that's been built. Like they almost seem like a family at this point. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's tradition, it's family bonding before they get on the plane and then they're ready to rock and roll. And no one, no one was, uh, even remotely excited about getting a new gunner. So, I mean, is it just the fact that they don't have their dude with them or is it the fact that they felt like they weren't going to have that lucky, that lucky charm with them? So I was kind of, I was kind of concerned at first, but I think that, um, Spielberg was able to build that like relationship really quick with everybody. Yeah, and I also liked that like the captain was like, I was just telling my boss that we aren't superstitious. It's like, yeah, but we, can we all just touch this guy's head? Like I liked, I like that juxtaposition. I also like that. There's a lot of, uh, uh, there was this wonderful shot leading up to that discussion where you kind of weaved around a little bit around the bottom of the plane and how they're doing like the, the inspection checks and everything. So like as much as they're getting this thing loaded up and ready to go, you could tell as much as this thing is a war machine, it needs upkeep, you know? So, like, I think that also kind of like ties in to these things were always rode hard and put away wet. And so, yeah, they get up in the air and that's when we learn more about uh, Jonathan, two things about Jonathan. Um, one that he's a, he's, he's a really good artist, like a good, like cartoonist type artist, but he also, he's just good. He's just good at what he does. And he also has a really good relationship with um, Kiefer Sutherland's character static to the point to where he's going to be naming his first child after, after static. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I like how he comes over to him real slow, and he says, "Do you really want to call your kid Arthur?" He's like, "That's your name." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, maybe not. Maybe I'll just call him Static instead. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And so there's actually um, at that point, um, they end up uh, putting him in the belly gun, which you know that's that's a really effective moment of seeing how they see it. They close him in in there, but then he hands up one of his drawings, and he's supposed to. It's supposed to go to the captain. Uh, did you did you notice like the nice um, like it's not a tracking shot because it's in the middle of like the majority of this episode takes place within the confines of this plane. So it's pretty much with the exception of a little bit of soundstage work with like the tower. This is all in this plane. And there's a wonderful like um, tr like um, following shot of this drawing going from the belly gunner all the way up to the captain in that screams of Spielberg, but it also screams of like competent filmmaking. Yeah, I really dug it. it um, there's some shots like this in uh, submarine films where you, you know, um, run uh, was it hunt for Red October and stuff like that. It, it's it it shows you the confines of the sh the the ship or the plane that much more too. Like there's no wiggle room here. You're following along with them. You see what kind of like track these guys are on every time that they have to do something yeah it's a it's it's kind of it's it was a fun shot but it made me feel claustrophobic as well effective you know right it's like yeah. you could have easily just done a bunch of quick cuts to get it get it going where it's going and it would have been fine but i think that also puts you as part of the crew and also does stress yeah. the cla the claustrophobia it's, yeah it's it was a good a, shot. really yeah. effective in that so. it, it also just again shows you that you might have the budget for TV, but that doesn't mean that you're beholden to making the easy decision in terms of directing. 
Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of smart filmmaking going on in this that I adore. And it just shows Spielberg like getting better and better, you know? And I, like, I, you know, again, I know we just talked about him and fawning all over what he can do, but this could have been a very pedestrian uh, episode, but his direction also kind of like it, it, it bumps it up a couple of points no matter what. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's the only thing that makes this scene even remotely um, like charming is the everybody's uh, morale. Like their their morale is so high, even though they were in World War Two, they're about to drop bombs on whatever part of Germany or whatever is uh, they're going to bomb. And it's such a gritty scene, too. You can see the dirt on their faces and that. But the morale is so high. It's like it's it's such an interesting um, segment that we're we're seeing right here in this moment. Like it's really it's really compelling. Yeah. So and, and like there's a whole bit too where one of them is making tea and one of them is making like it, it's it's a little bit of pantomime and so you get kind of like a nice like general vibe of everybody and it's like there even though there's some like when you say family. You literally have two brothers giving each other shit, but there's also that kind of like, yeah, we could pick on each other, but don't you dare say anything about this guy because I have his back. And you get that from the jump. And I think that also is a nice uh, foundation for the second half of the episode. Yeah. And I love that the drawings are kind of they're they're almost like a character in themselves in this yeah. entire scene. Um, like even when we first open up to the beginning of this episode, we are panning out from a picture that is in, um, the belly gunner that, um, Jonathan put in there. And then throughout the scenes that we see, um, the rest of the crew, we are seeing other pictures that he put all around the ship. It's really, it's really exciting because you know that they care a lot more about Jonathan Jen than just being like, well, he can shoot a lot of Nazis. Like the dude is actually a family member and he is super talented. Like I love these drawings that they're showing off. Yeah. And uh, so, so just to, to, to note that he uh, met somebody, he you know, met his wife, uh, wherever they're at I'm in Germany. Right. And and they said, well, what are you going to do? He's like, well, she's an American citizen. And it's like, she's pregnant. We're going back stateside. Like he has a future. And then also, uh, there's a bit uh, where one of the twins holds up his own version of a drawing that's like above like one of the walkways, like one of the arches. And he's like, how come I can't do this? And everyone's like, you don't have the talent and imagination that he does. Like, it's a funny little bit where he like he has like stick figures where Jonathan's like, like, you know, not only is he talented, but it's also like you feel like this is the guy that you would find like on a Coney Island boardwalk doing caricatures and how everybody has to be on a skateboard. You know, like he's good. Like. Not, I mean, that implies that, like, I feel like the height of art is, like, large heads on skate, like, people on skateboards. But that's the vibe I get. It's, like, a little comical, but also steeped in reality. And he's he's necessary, like, in the fact that everybody's excited to be there, even though they're doing something so horrific, like being in war. And they're probably going to kill hundreds of people right now, <laughs> which is I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic and it's scary, but like the, the way that uh, Jonathan is in, ingratiating himself into that family lifestyle with them and with these pictures alone, like they're just having conversations about these pictures. Like Jonathan's not even there. It's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. So then what happens at this point? 
uh, as they're talking about like imagination and everything. Um, like and that's when uh, Static's talking about this. This is whenever um, they get attacked and the, the the their ship starts taking sorry their plane starts taking fire. Um, I want to point out that all the action in the sequence takes place inside the plane. Like you see enemy fighters outside a little bit, but you don't see them like, how do I describe this? You don't see our plane directly interacting with those planes. Like this isn't like there's a dog fight going on, but it isn't like it, 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 like you see planes approaching, but it's like one of those things that, you know, on set as they're shaking the cockpit and everything that they have a relative scale model of a German plane out the window shooting at them. And it's like, it's one of those things that, you know, it's a scale model, but it works and it's really, really cool. Yeah. I think these, these shots are actually uh, true to original filming, how they were able to take a shoestring budget sometimes and just make it look so kick ass. Like I love how um, film has progressed. I mean, I got to give it a lot of respect, but there's, there's something lost in uh, miniatures and like, the ability to take shots for like knowing that you can't fix it in the end. And this seems like one of those old school 1930s, 40s shot mm-hmm. where it's just, it, it, you, you know that they, they worked hard to like understand, well, it it's going to be effective. We don't need a lot of money to take care of the shot. And it, it's cool because you could tell that the, the German, um, uh, gunners are, uh, well, gunners, um, planes are just, they're, they're stationary like and it's just a matter of like moving the shot around it's really cool and effective yeah and like the most expensive shot i think is probably when they show after jonathan actually guns one of them down approaching the belly turret that you see the prop of the german plane flying towards them that feels like the way it's kind of like um green screened it feels like something like out of india jones or whatever like it you know it works it really really works but it's probably the most expensive shot in the whole thing but for the most part, you have these like you have reactions, you have the like the set shaking or the camera shaking, which I mentioned saving private Ryan. Um, you you begin to wonder, like I know also was it uh, like Spielberg, this is his first time you know visiting World War II. You know he probably cut his teeth on some of this, right? But he knew how to get you in it and make like this thing can take a beating, but that's not a given. And it just, it was just really cool. Like I, I liked the sequence because it was, it, um, it was thrilling. It left you like guessing what was going to happen. Like, like I said, I'd already, I'd already seen this episode growing up, so I knew where it was going, but not seeing this in 20 plus years, it doesn't change the impact of how good the sequence is. Yeah, it's cool. And like, it also shows you that how quickly emotions can change and like the situation can change because i mean that sh- that shot was literally shots like all of a sudden bullets are coming into the the cabin of the of the plane and it's like all right time to rock and roll we're gonna we're gonna try to survive this so we can drop these bombs and you know it, it was a the ship or ship the uh the uh craft was a b-17 and they're not evasive like they can't they can't (laughs) like a fighter a fighter jet or anything like that so these are these are terrifying times i mean the reason they have so many gunners on that on that um plane is because they they they're like a straightforward 
drop the load and then get their get their asses out of there as fast as possible. So, I, I mean, it's it's actually kind of uh, it's kind of scary to see what's transpiring at this moment. So you said what, what kind of what kind of plane was this? I'm sorry, I was looking up something. It was quick. a B. Uh, it was a B seventeen bomb. B seventeen. Okay. Uh, I, I was going to mention at the end of the episode. However, I'm just going to just mention it now while I'm thinking about it because I looked it up. Because the internet, uh, season two, episode one of the original series, The Twilight Zone, is called The King Nine Will Not Return. It involves um, a B-25 bomber that they, um, the trivia is they actually used one of those. They were actually able to buy it and use it as a location. And Buzz Kulik, um, it, it's a really cool looking sequence of, of, of an episode where just one guy's wandering around this B-25 that's like been grounded and trying to find his crew. So I, I there's some DNA here. You know, um, where you mentioned that these things aren't exactly agile. They were built to take a beating and drop a payload. And it's even evident um, whenever after they do the damage report, which we'll get into, like the complications of that, like the captain, Kevin Costner is like, oh, yeah, I could tell we're losing some engines it's pulling to the right. Like, that's what you say when you hit a raccoon in the road with your car, not an airplane. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> you know I've what never, I mean? It's like, it's like oh, oh crap, I hit that pothole. My suspension's jacked. It's like, it's pulling to the right a little bit as opposed to, we got, almost got shot out of the sky. We're good. Like, what? I, I will put out, put out a, a, a fun fact, too. One of the reasons I also wanted to watch this um, was I love Heavy Metal, the animated uh, 80s yes. film. And there is a amazing uh, segment in that with a bomber that I believe is probably a B-17 from the looks of it. And it is very similar situation. So, like, for me to pick out this episode, it wasn't by accident. Like, just, like, seeing the sequence unfold now, it makes me, like, I big think that, like, everybody's going to drop dead and come become zombies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they weren't that far out from everything that was going on, right? So what we find out is that, uh, you know, the, some of the engines are kind of shot. Um, because of the wreckage flying into the plane, the belly gunner position, the turret can't be opened. They can't get Jonathan out. That seems okay to begin with. They go tell the captain, like, hey, Static goes tell the, he tells the captain, it's like, yeah, we've lost some fuel. We've lost all this. Um, by the time we, if, if things are if fortunate, we should be able to land without a problem. He's like, okay. He's like, uh, and then um, Static's like, hey, have you tried uh, the landing gear? And there's another good moment, too, where there's this creeping revelation amongst uh, the captain, uh, the nose gunner, which his name's Bullseye, and Jonathan, who's in the belly, where they all realize at the same time, because of what just happened, the landing gear shredded. Um, and it's a, it's a very effective sequence. And at that point, they realize that they can get home, they can land, but Jonathan's not going to make it because he's, he's stuck in the bottom of the plane. And the episode kind of changes from like, you know, this rah, rah, World War II, we're going to make it to, um, you talk about family. It's like the crew knows that they're going to make it. Jonathan's not. And, it, and the whole thing just totally, it starts taking a much darker turn, rightfully so. Yeah, it, it it was like the simple math wasn't unfolded yet, um, and the captain's like, "Well, you know, I've never I've never landed on my belly or whatever at the uh, like this." And he's like, "But I can do it, no problem." And that's when 
Static is like, we can't get him out. And it's like, that's when the situation, the, like the, not even the situation, like the, the mood just drops and captain's like, well, that ain't going to work. So he goes back and he tries to open up the hatch as well. And he's frantic at this point. And they're like, we've tried that. We've tried that. He's like, I don't, I didn't ask for your opinion or whatever. It's like, I, he's trying so desperately to get him out. You know that he cares a lot about Jonathan. It's not just that, you know, he's a member of the crew. It's he, he cares about him. Like he's a son or something like that. And, and he even gets him, he gets himself shocked on trying to remove the wreckage. Well, cause he so. was also the one that signed off on bringing him in too. You know, it's like you, and give, I just caution or give him credit, which I know it's easy. Sorry, let me rephrase. Like, as if I've done this um, in terms of like acting and having range and whatever. But I, I think rage and desperation, I think it's an easier thing for an actor to lean into because you get to do more things with your hands and yell. But his desperation is what comes through where he goes to try to turn the belly the one way and turn it the other way. And the one dude keeps telling him, like, Captain, we already tried it. He's like, I know. We're going to try it again. Like, it's one of those things of, like, he's hoping against hope. And then he takes that, like, wrench and starts banging it. It's like, we've all been there where it's like the, like, I know this isn't going to happen, but please, for the love of God, make it work. And then when he grabs that, like that hot, like that, whatever it is, it's like, it's like a piece of metal or a wire. that's like electric, you know, whatever he shocks his hand, but he realizes like he's about to lose one of his and, or, or, or let me this rephrase. He doesn't want to, he also accepts the responsibility of, I let him on here. It wasn't supposed to go this way. This is on me. And it's a very desperate moment that, um, is, is is shot wonderfully and Costner gives a hell of a performance. And I'm glad that they they wrote uh, the captain like that, that he he got out of the cockpit and he's like, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. It, it's, you know, it, it's a more human character that way. And it made me feel a hell of a lot more sympathetic towards the situation because yeah, you could have your lucky charm and yeah, you can get through this, uh, you know, this bombing. No problem. This dude might die and it makes that big of an impact on the captain. It's like written well, written very well. Yeah, because he has the big like the biggest burden to carry because as much as he is just torn into because he's going to lose one, he's bringing back the rest of them. And and this goes through a little bit later, so I'm, I'm stepping on this a little bit when, like, his co-pilot is like, aren't you going to talk to him? It's like, what can I say to him? It's like, it's like this is going to ruin the rest of his life, but he knows that the the smarter, better decision is to land this thing on its belly and save everybody else, you know? And so he's all, he's torn, like, and there's even that bit, like, when Jonathan's like, hey, rub my head for luck. And it's at that point, it's like, shut up. You're crying, you know? <laughs> like, so like Costa reaches through and, you know, and pets his head. Um, and that becomes like the touch point and no pun intended for the rest of the episode, because he is the lucky charm. And it's like, God damn it. Spielberg. He, he was able to like use tweezers and pull out that emotional resonance and just stick it to you. It almost felt like two different, um, 
two different types of situations that are playing here. For one, he is hoping that that the the rub of the of his head may give some luck, but it also felt like when you go to a funeral and you're paying your last respects, like it felt like that too. Like we all know what is more than likely going to be the inevitable here because they haven't found a workaround. Yeah. So they're kind of paying their last respects. And it's like, it's terrifying. I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. I actually kind of tear it up during this scene. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, like it's, it's Spielberg as, as, as the kids say as AF, right? Like it is effective. Uh, Casey sells the hell out of it. Like he's a man that is like, he, he's the, the, the Joker. He's the, the, the tie that binds He's the like the little brother, I guess. I don't know how else to quantify. He's trying to make jokes, right? And also, I want to point out too that after the plane hits them and he's like kind of like knocked out, like unconscious, he's like, "Oh, I must have got a concussion." I'm like, "Yeah, that's a little bit more serious than you're saying right now." But whatever, we'll move on with the story. Like you know. But anyway, um, so yeah, he's the he's the one that's trying to make them feel better, even though the panic's rising in him. Uh, it's very effective. So as they go forward, they realize like uh, they have 12 minutes before landing and that starts a ticking clock, which done well is always amazing. Like I don't, what, what's your favorite ticking clock scenario in like a movie? Oh, geez. Uh, I'll, I'll give you mine. If that primes the whale for you, primes the pump aliens. There's the, the constant countdown of minimum safe, like clearance distance for clearance and how Cameron like actually nails it because it is um, like timestamped correctly from the moment the, the alarms go off. And that's very much like panic inducing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could, I get that one. That that's a really good uh, example. Um, I was actually leaning towards uh, escape from Alcatraz. Okay. And, and, and again, know, I failed. I've not seen that yet. So I have a lot of homework to do. Yeah, it, it's in, it, it's incredible. Um, and Clint Eastwood is amazing. Um, but like, you know, they know when the the, um, the times are supposed to happen. Um, I won't give away too much, but they have a window of opportunity to get the hell out of there, and they timed it so well. It's actually based on a real event too. Okay. So if you research it, um, it's pretty cool. It's honestly a really cool um story to to read into but yeah that's that's mine yeah i just i think a ticking clock it just you you want to escalate right you want to add additional like complication which i mean we mentioned um the indiana jones films which i know that spielberg and his uh his uh teleplay writer here um i have his name here in front of me uh minnow uh Mayus, and i know and, and also um uh lucas they would make it a point of like, like every 10 pages in that having like an additional complication. Like we love Indiana Jones because it's like, he's always like, he he's like, I can't be bothered to handle more. Oh shit. There's more coming. Like this feels like this where it's like, not only are we losing engines and fuel, um, we have a belly gunner that can't get out. And it's like, Oh, everything we're going to try is going to make this worse. Like, or not worse, but like, we're like, we're running out of options, right? Like I, and so we have the clock ticking. So then it means basically there's even the bit too, where the crew rushes up to the front, all of them pack the cockpit and they're like, but what if we fly it at an angle? And what if we do a barrel roll? And what if, you know, what if we have extra mans? What if we get like, whatever they say, you know, 
and uh, and and Costner's character is like like even he's like even at this thing even with our our, our plane being like like you know complete without damage it would be difficult he's like we can't be the flying circus on crutches so that eliminates like that notion of like flying in on their wing and landing and giving Jonathan a chance to kick out and run away but that's also like the desperate prayer right they're like we got to give him like a chance so then they come up with this idea, which is actually a pretty good idea of unfurling a parachute, feeding him the silk from the parachute through the tiny hole in the belly gun and having him kick out of the plexi of the belly turret at like 1200 feet and then trying to parachute out. And that's like, okay, great. There's a working solution. And then like in, in a perfect um, Spielberg fashion that doesn't work out because uh, Jonathan's like too eager and getting like scared, rightfully so. I can't blame a man. Uh, and then also the rest of the crew panics and it causes the parachute silk to rip. And by the time they realize what they did, they don't have the altitude to try it again. And that's a, like, and they all kind of get quiet. And that's another amazing, important, like, like emotional moment. Yeah. And then we even have static here. Uh, he goes up to the captain. He's like, you know, let's uh, give him like a little bit more time, essentially. And we're going to feed him another shoot. And, um, you know, the captain looks at him. He's like, what, what's beyond this point here? And he says the forest. He's like, you know, we can't make it. So it's, it is literally, that was the last chance for that idea. And they screwed it up. And, um, so like again we see this sinking feeling like they don't even want to make eye contact now because yeah. I think the reality is that much harder if they do so. Yeah, so then this becomes a thing especially with like uh the captain where the co-pilot's like you know cuz like like Jonathan's trying to talk to him he's like what do you want me to say to him? Like what do you want me to say? And it's like you know it's 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 just credit credit to the writing which is you know which you mentioned and also to Costner where it's like you're given an impossible decision to make, but you have to live with one of them. Right. And that's a very delicate balance to walk to where you feel sympathy. I feel sympathetic for, to the captain the entire time. Like he's, he is being, he's being a dick, but he has to be, you know? And it's like, you'd know he doesn't want to be, but he has to be because if you give them any sense of false hope that could cause all of them, uh, he could, we could lose the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's literally save most of the crew or risk everybody's life for one just on the desperate act of trying to save them. And he knows if he, he I mean, this isn't his first uh, his first rodeo. It's he's done this before. He knows the math and he knows that he's going to he's going to basically walk away from this situation with some kind of asterisk. Yeah. Well, he even he's says, just trying to prevent the, the worst case scenario. But he even says to the crew, he's like, once we land, get the hell away from this and don't look back. Cause it's like, no one wants to see that pink smear on the, on like the runway and know what they did. You know, like how can you even process or live with that? Right. So, um, so at that point um, we have this, this uh, really heart tug moment of like all of all the rest of the, the crew going in and rubbing Jonathan's head and Jonathan just losing it. Like just, he's not losing his mind, but like, like he's still like hoping against hope, but 
Like, it's one of those things where it's like, you're hoping for the best, but the tears are still coming out of you. It's one of those, again, like credit to Casey, the actor in the sequence. It is heartbreaking. Yeah. And he has pretty much as this is all unfolding, he, he's processing the situation, but he goes to a monologue, basically like putting it all out there. Like, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't, this isn't going to happen. Like this isn't how it's supposed to happen. I'm going to be a cartoonist for Disney. I'm going to, I'm going to have my child and I'm going to be there for the birth of my child. Like again, maybe a way to like really drive it in there. He has a, an unborn child that he has to look forward to too. Like, I think that the captain is probably, thinking that the entire time and i think the audience was supposed to obviously feel that emotion as well spielberg didn't have to put that in there but man does that really tug at the heartstrings like the dude's about to be a, a father and maybe not even experience the birth of his child it's like no that not um not jonathan it's not happening like and he, we even get this sequence where um the base sees them coming in yeah and we have a priest that comes in and he's trying to, I guess, give maybe the last rites he to is. Jonathan. Yep. So it's, it, and Jonathan's like, no, nah, save your prayers for somebody who needs them kind of situation. It's like, uh, it's not going to be me today. Go, go find somebody who is more uh, in need of your, uh, your words right now. And it's, he's empowering the situation, but it's like, still, we're like, they're really close to landing. What are we going to do here? What, even so, the, the one, the one guy at the tower that, uh, you had mentioned that had like all the credits, he's like, Oh, he's like, yeah, I trust, I trust the captain. And it's like, yeah, but they don't have landing gear. And there's someone in the belly. He's like, well, they're going to hope that he's been, he's dead. And it's like, Nope. It's like, they would have wished he was. And then he looks down. He's like, he didn't say this, but he's like, Oh shit. It's like, what happens? Like, that's his wife. <laughs> like it's like so Jonathan's wife shows up and I'm laughing just because it's like again, it adds a further complication, but there's a really, really, really good shot that could have easily been like done very pedestrian, but it's it's from her and then the camera tilts upward. She stays in frame and you see the rest of the people on the tower on the second floor, uh, like the outside edge, like the priest and the the other military people like watching. It's like, it's one of those, like, like, I wish I was smart enough to visualize storytelling like this because it tells you so much with just the tilt of a camera. And it's a really a great shot. Yeah, definitely. I, I think uh, they could have lost a lot if they uh, hand away in a different, like in a different shot or whatever. Like this is good storybook um, presentation. Like whoever did the, the, the presentation uh, storybooking, like they knew exactly wanted to, what they wanted to achieve from this shot. And like, I think at this point too, she doesn't even really know what the hell is going to happen. She just, she's actually smiling. Like, yeah. But you also hear like over like the speakers in the airfield, the priest talking. And I know there's a bit where you get the notion that Jonathan's being like his, his audio is being fed into the airfield. I like that's what it sounded like to me. I don't like I don't know if you took that or not. No, it, I I think at some point they ended up doing that, but okay. maybe she maybe she just got out of a a jeep real quick and she didn't hear any of that transpire. 
Yeah, that, but I think you're right. You see the reality play out in her eyes um, some uh, scenes later, and it's like, oh shit, like, I may lose my husband here. Like, what the hell is going on? Uh, especially when you can hear um, Jonathan relaying to the priest, like, yeah, save your prayers. Yeah. So then, then it shifts to, and there's a great sequence. So there's one of the, one of the other crew members, I, I can't remember who he is, but he's telling everybody, he's like, Hey, if it was me in there, I'd want, I'd want a painless, like quick death. So he's basically saying one of us needs to shoot Jonathan because we owe him this versus being like stuck under a plane and being skidded to death type of thing, which again, I can't disagree with that statement, you know, like, so um, so they all like, so static is like, we can't do it. We can't do it. But then there's another amazing shot in this where we see Kiefer Sutherland sitting like dejected and he has his bomber jacket on. He unzips it and takes off like, well, he takes off his like uh life vest. I think it's what it is. And then he unzips his bomber jacket and he opens the left side of his jacket. And the way the light is already there, it highlights the gun and a holster that he has. And it's like, you could see him working mentally through everything. Again, good storytelling because you see everything you need and the light is perfectly um, showing where you need it to be. And it's one of those things that it seems so obvious when you're looking at it, but it's not. And so you get the notion that static is like, he's one of my, he's one of my best friends. Um, You could tell he's struggling with it, but he's going to make that decision. And it, again, it adds another element to the ticking clock and the building of where we're going. It, it's such a frightening sequence that obviously the rest of the crew knows, but Static, up until that point, has tried so desperately p- to be like, no, we can find a solution, we can find it. And the realization, like, you see like Kiefer sells it so well, man. Like it's, 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 it's actually kind of, it, it's kind of scary because he knows the reality right then and there. And he knows that to do this, he's only going to save, uh, Jonathan from suffering. Yeah. And it's like, dude, that's terrifying. Like I would never want to be in statics position. Never, ever. Like it's, it is like the most realistic war situation. Yeah. Like you don't, you do, like, you can't, unless you're the person put in that situation, you can't possibly like understand that, which I mean, I've not, you know, so it, it's a hell of a thing. Right. So then what we get is they're, they're getting closer you know to landing and this, beca- this, this is where the story becomes amazing. Right. So Jonathan then gets in his head that it's like, I'm going to start drawing. Cause you know, uh, that's what I do. I'm going to do it. Everybody sees that I have an imagination. Everybody sees I have talent. So he starts this really, really quick sketch of the plane and he keeps working, working, working. And he's like also kind of reciting some of the, um, uh, the last rites and also like praying to God. And you see everybody, it's like this tense moment of like everybody preparing for the worst. And you got, uh, static slowly creeping up on the belly gun because you can tell that like, he still doesn't want to do it, but he keeps moving forward with it. And it's this interchange back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then um, eventually uh, um, Jonathan completes his drawing and he stares at it and he asks the captain to try the landing gear one last time. And, you know, you can tell that like um, 
Kevin Costner's character, which he already had like his headphones off. Like he just, he already knew what was about to happen. His co-pilot's like, just put on the headphones. Like Jonathan's asking for something. He's like, try it one more time. And then Costner's character says, I think what the last thing the priest says with him, because I guess he's a Catholic and he tries the landing gear. So then Terry, tell me what happens next. Okay. So any of our listeners right now who have not seen this episode, stop it right now, because this is going to give away exactly what we're building up to for a reason. You should be watching it. Yes. We, we get some really funky sounds. And all- <laughs> we, we get a we get a like noise like coming out like it's like a splotchy noise that's amazing I love the sound effect yeah it was it was like oh okay <laughs> so like I it's instantly felt like I was in a cartoon but we see landing gear come out of the wings that are completely cartooned the, I mean that's the easiest way to put this. We there are like it like the the lighting for the rest of the scene. It's so drab and like it it's it, it looks like the plane is beat up. But then we see these really vibrant cartoon wheels drop down, and and now we have wheels and everybody's like, wait, what? <laughs> what just happened? So um, it it. It doesn't look dissimilar from from what you see of the pairing of reality and um, animation reality that you'd find later in 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's that's the way it is, and that's that was directed by Robert Zemeckis. So you know, take what you want from this. But you see these big yellow cartoon wheels with like the red patch on the wheel. Like it's very, um, it's very like Fleischer, like early Disney. Like it's these big yellow wheels, right? And I like that the the nose gunner, like Bullseye, is like, "We got wheels." He's like, "I I don't know what it is, but." And the Coster's like, "It's a miracle." He's like, "Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for." Like it was like, so it's amazing because like it just it just it's one of those things where, but you get Jonathan staring like that's I think that's the thing I didn't pick up on as a kid watching this was him just like. He was laser focused and and willing reality like like his drawing. He accepted it as real. He had faith in his ability and he was staring at these at this landing gear. And so because they had wheels, uh, they land the plane. And it's amazing because you hear the boop, boop, like the cartoon noises and they get off the plane. And I love it when they're and I'd forgotten about the sequence too. Kevin Costner, you know, acclaimed actor gets out of this plane and touches a cartoon wheel and you hear the noise and you just see him wipe cartoon like magic off the front of him. That's a really funny bit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so cool that the way that this sequence plays out and Jonathan, Jonathan's like dead stare. He doesn't want to interrupt it either. Like he sees that, Obviously, the wheel that he just touched is some kind of reality, but he he doesn't understand it. And he sees Jonathan staring. Mm-hmm. He's like, whatever it is, we can't interrupt the magic. Like he's he's controlling this situation somehow. It's like waking somebody up from a dream. You don't want to do it. Like you just got to let him. Right. Go. Exactly. Like he whatever it is, 
he's still in danger too because he's still in the belly turret. Like so, if we if we interrupt whatever this magic is, it's still going to kill him. Yeah, I like that his crew is like like they're like, hey, Jonathan, they're like tapping on the glass, and then Kavakashi's like, shh, just just shut up. Like we gotta get him out of here. And and there's even a bit too. Uh, I'll play at the very end of the episode where like they're daring each other to touch the wheel, and I thought that was funny. But like nobody, it's one of those things where it's like nobody can comprehend. But like no one's trying to challenge it right now because the alternative is way worse. So they get they get Jonathan out of the turret. They slowly walk him out, and the moment they get him away, like they drag him off to the side. His wife is there, and he's still kind of dazed. And he's like, "Jonathan, like someone says, you're home, you're you're safe." And it takes Kevin Costner to slap him across the face to bring him back to like reality, and then. That's the amazing part where the, the, the wheels disappear and the plane collapses on the runway, crushing the belly turret. It's a, it's a cool sequence because you knew how important it was for Jonathan to stay at that, in that state. Like, and like the captain was like, I don't understand it, but we need to, we need, we just need to do this. We'll ask the questions later. And thank God that he did because it could have killed him if he woke him up. So, yeah. So yeah, that's pretty much the end of your episode. Um, Like, I mean, there's a little bit of talking about how he has an imagination and you see some of the, the drawings blowing across the airfield, but that's pretty much it. So um, I, I think I, I, I think I have ruined this episode for you previously talking about it. Um, so you knew where it was going, though. You knew about the cartoon wheels. If I, I'm sure I blabbed about that previously. Yeah, you, that that was something that you had unfolded uh, in the conversations. I you can say I ruined to. it. It's fine to say I ruined it. It's fine. Like <laughs> you ruined it. You ruin everything, Paul. I do. I am. Shut I, up, I, I'm Paul. a great ruiner. Yeah. Here, here, yeah. Oh, shut up, Paul. Yeah. There you go. You, well, here, you know, it, here's it, another spoiler for you too. That cat was a witch. That's another spoiler. Just throw that out there. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> Please go ahead. I, I will I will say though, even in knowing what what the outcome was for the wheels, the visuals and the storytelling that existed in this episode were amazing. And I'm glad that I still watched it and gave it the time of day. Even in knowing what like the ending basically was like with Spielberg, you could tell everybody like the, the shark dies in the end, you know, like it jaws, you can tell everybody that, you know, whatever the, the sequence is for ending of his, one of his films, he still wants you to see the film. So he's going to give you a reason to see the film. Like I've never been disappointed by any Spielberg film that I've ever watched because the visuals and the storytelling are always on point and it gives me a reason to watch every sequence, not just knowing the end of the film and then throwing it away to the side and being like, ah, I know what the ending is. Like it's not an M night channel on film. I don't, I want to see a Steven Spielberg film. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we're at the end here. Uh, like, when I, when I was pitching this to you previously, because I know you weren't as familiar with Amazing Stories, when I told you like this was like Spielberg, like wonder at like it's like just like like saturation point. And I mean that in a good way. 
did this thing not leak Spielberg the entire time and showing somebody that was only going to do really cool things going forward? I think this is very much his fingerprints, like what we know him as even still. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, honestly, without knowing like the things that he would have done after this fact, you could have placed this alongside of the things that he's doing currently because yeah. it is still on point, man. Like it's good storytelling and I love the visuals and it. the acting is great. I mean, like, except for I'm going to point this guy out because it was t- a, a terrible accent. JJ Cohen, who plays Jake in it, he needs to work on <laughs> his uh, Southern accent. It was like, it was, it was a little much. <laughs> was, he, was he the redhead that kind of like Ron Perlman, but had not grown to his face yet? Is that who you're talking about? Or was it the bullseye? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like- the guy who <laughs> was trying to be so th- Southern, but like it reminded me so much of like what we got out of uh, last week's discussion of the, uh, the New, New York, York accent. <laughs> yeah. I was like, stop, please stop it right now. Fair enough. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I like I could do a Southern accent, but I can't do like a ridiculous. I don't know. It's like if you call upon me and I'm, I could not even do what this guy did. So, but yeah, you're right. Um, That was a little weird. Absolutely. Uh, But yeah, no, this whole thing, like it, it's, a, it was a good episode. And um, I, so far of the three episodes that I've visited in recent memory, I have liked all three and this is a, a series that I need to revisit in full, at least watch the first season. Cause it's NBC.com. Um, there's some good shit here. Like I know that's a little crass, but there's some good shit here and this is great. And I love this episode. And also we didn't even talk about the John Williams score that runs through this. Like talk about somebody that like makes you feel Spielberg AF that John Williams score through all this was great too. Oh, you got to appreciate the John Williams, man. Like I was actually recently talking to somebody about John Williams and like how people just need to look at his material and just be like, yeah, I was a kid during all of this stuff. <laughs> and I feel like a kid every time I listen to this it. This is why I it, love it, things. Yeah. So you got to appreciate it. So th- yeah, this is, this is a number of creative people firing off like on like firing all cylinders. Right. So good episode. I'm glad that we took a chance to, to, um, like get into this a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, quick, uh, little note too. Uh, we didn't talk about it in the, uh, Stephen King or Stephen King, Steven Spielberg's, um, uh, filmography. We are primarily a twilight zone, Rod Serling, like fanboy podcast here. Spielberg did two episodes of night gallery and, he did the kick the can segment of the uh, film from the eighties. So we got to love Spielberg a little bit more yes. in our podcast. Yeah. And we'll be visiting the, the movie eventually. And I know we'll be digging into some uh, night gallery, which was some of his first directed work. Cause I, if I remember right, he just kind of walked onto a set and was like, oh, I'm directing. He eventually kept convincing people to let him direct. If I remember right. Cause it's like, he wanted to, and like, no, back then, like no one could check credentials. So I think that's how I got onto night gallery. We'll talk more about that when we get there, but yeah, we love Spielberg. Yeah. So thank you, Steven Spielberg. Um, you, the man, uh, we hope to be talking about you uh, soon enough and hopefully call you 
friend of show. Steven <laughs> yeah. <Spielberg>, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's just like, yeah. yeah uh, Mr. Spielberg. I know you're, uh, you know, I know you're not busy right now, but <laughs> it's like, Hey, this really, really small podcast talking about the twilight zone and also your work back in the eighties of TV. Can we just, call, can we call you Steve for short? Like, you know, Hey, Spurgs, can we talk to you sometime? That'd be great. <laughs> I love it. I would love it if like we get like that one major celebrity that's all about our show. That would be I, I just my mind would just be melted. Yeah, that that would be wonderful. Um <laughs> whoever that is, um, even if it is one of our uh C or D list actors here, I will I will appreciate it. Yeah, hey, twins. Hey, Sam and Dave, if you want to follow our show, we would be all about it. Hey, Morrow twins. Why not? You know, Anthony Paglia, I said enough nice things about you from So I Married Axe Murder. Give, give us a follow. Yeah, uh, anybody. Uh, we'll take any listener at this point, even if you're a pseudo actor and like that just plays a dead body in home films. <laughs> our podcast. Yeah, if you if you have been a friend. victim in uh, a Law and Order episode, we would love you to follow the show. That'd be great. But anyway, so yeah, that's going to do it for our discussion about uh, Amazing Stories: uh, uh, The Mission. Oh, I forgot to give you some day and date stuff. I let me let me talk about day and date real quick because there's some cool stuff that went on here, and then we'll we'll be out the door. Uh, air date, uh, you know, November 3rd, 85. Number one song was Part-Time Lover by Stevie Wonder. Number one film, Death Wish 3, which is ridiculous. Uh, but <laughs> o- other things that were going on around this time. So in October, October 18th and 85, the NES first released in the U.S. Uh, November 18th, so two weeks after this came out, this episode, the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes debuted. And then November 20th, which would be two days after that, uh, Microsoft released its first vision version of windows 1.0. So just think about some of that stuff. Uh, yeah. Technology was definitely at the, uh, uh the uprise there. Uh, we're, we're working slowly and this shows from that point to, uh, Cyberdyne. So <laughs> yes, but I just thought death wish three, why not? If you want to watch a movie, that's just ridiculous. It's like the exact opposite of quality, but fun. Watch Death Wish 3. Anyway, so yeah, anyway, I would have been remiss to not mention those facts talking about this in context. So, yes, that's going to do it for our discussion about uh, Amazing Stories. Um, You guys can find us on our Facebook page. It's uh, Strange Highways. You can email us directly at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. Wherever you find your podcast, please rate and review us. And Terry, tell everybody about like the other technology thing that we're doing. So we are finally on Instagram again. So if you could please go to Strange Highways podcast at Instagram, all one word, basically, and start checking out our ridiculous pictures that we're going to start posting because we got a little bit of an infancy going on here. But we're going to start bombarding Instagram with lots of lots of stuff. So hopefully you'll be a part of that. And we are apparently I don't know if uh, Paul had mentioned this prior. We are on another format, too. Uh, you can find us at um, Spotify. You can even listen to us on Spotify. Now. We're on Spotify? So- I didn't even – I didn't know this. Okay, great. Um, good. The, the reason I didn't know this is because Spotify usually has some rules in place about licensed content, you know, like music and stuff, which, you know, we don't really use a lot of that, but I didn't know. So thanks for letting me know. Everybody – Use Spotify. Listen to us there. 
wow, like I didn't like I had no idea. So maybe we're only going to be on Spotify for a little bit. So if you're using a different format or you're listening through a website and you already use Spotify, follow it. Uh, go go to us on Spotify. I, I think uh, give for us the most part, cred. we should be OK. It's just that I didn't know. like there's weird breakpoints in terms of content that can be used, like uh, in terms of like music clips and like audio clips where. There's fair use, and then there's a point of like, oh, that's too much. I never really knew where that line was, so I never submitted it to Spotify previously. But until they tell us that we can't be there, like, just let's just do it, and you know, let's let's all let's all like you know, buck the system and fight the future, and just you know, you can find us on Spotify. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we'll probably be opening up a Kool Aid stand where we can give you Kool Aid and masks. So yeah. I mean. We're venturing, and sometimes we don't even know where we're venturing to. So, <laughs> yeah, right. So speaking, yeah, speaking of venturing, uh, so next week, um, before we before we start our grand journey back into season five, the original series, we're gonna we're gonna delve a little bit more in another detour. What we're gonna get into is a show called The Dark Room. Um, that was also it was a two sorry a single season blip on the radar. Uh, that was an ABC in uh, 82, seven episodes. These are also available at NBC.com. That, like, it was a weird thing. When we started talking about amazing stories, I found the dark room was there. Um, there's only seven episodes, uh, but it's an anthology series. We're going to be watching episode four of the dark room called It's Two Stories. It's a quiet funeral and makeup. Um, one of these stories has Billy Crystal and Brian Dennehy in it. So I'm not going to give away what's going on. I've not seen this. Uh, this will be exciting again to some, some anthology that, that tried. Um, there is a tie to some previous content that we've watched on the show. We'll get more of that later, but that's what we're watching next. Can't wait. I have no idea what we're about to get into, but it's available for free on NBC.com. Just look that up and look up for the show. Dark room. Yeah, and uh, forgive the uh, the commercials. Uh, the NBC connection it's, there it's, it's is a little annoying, but outside yeah. of our control, it's like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of um, political ads that I'd rather not see on a loop over and over and over again. But that's just me. But you got to deal with like a minute fifty five of commercials when they take breaks. Just deal with it. It's free. I hope you guys join. I hope you guys watch the amazing stories. And if you like this one, check out the rest of them. Like, there's some cool cool shit there. And check out Darkroom because it's available. This this is not Campfire Tales. This is easily available. Just watch it and join us, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do next. Uh, the Twilight Zone's not that far away, but we wanted to, you know, just do something different for a second. And this is about as different as we can get because Terry never heard of it, and I have a the smallest memory of the show existing. So this will be interesting. And I want to thank you, Paul, because I really enjoyed this episode and I can't wait to watch more of Amazing Stories. Yeah. Um, you and your wife need to sit down as the, the moment the clock, the clock strikes October. Watch Mummy Daddy. That's what I'll say. You guys will be delighted by that episode. But that's not what we're going to talk about next week. There might be more Billy Zane talk. I don't know, but that may happen. But let's go do it for us this week. Hope you guys enjoyed our discussion about the mission. Um, yeah. Have a good week. Have a safe week. And, um, I don't know, uh, when in doubt, draw wheels on shit. That's what I'll say. Uh, and like the crew of our, uh, plane, never give up hope.
touch it. You touch it. 